0: my dog came in but if 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 you coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village this is Academical the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review the Virginia Policy Review is an independent organization staffed by students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia with a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate ladies and gentlemen Welcome to Academical.
1: Welcome in, my name is Sean Bolowski. I'm a second year MPP student, and I'm excited about today's episode because it is on a topic that quite frankly, I was ignorant about, especially as I was going through undergraduate, and I don't even know, um, maybe if a lot of the terminology was, (laughs) was, was available back then, but we're talking about first generation college students and i'm going to give kind of a simplified definition because there's actually multiple definitions of a first-gen student but a first-generation college student is basically someone who is one of the first in their family or the first in their family to go to college and when you think about everything that goes into the college experience and just how overwhelming it can be from being away from your family for the first time living on your own having to figure out the academics having to figure out your major having to figure out Uh, The social aspect of it and having to worry about what you're going to do afterwards and trying to find a job. And there's so much that goes into that. And if you already have an established network or built in network of people who've gone through it beforehand, then that can that can certainly be be a leg up. And so I think there's there are some specific challenges to those who are first generation college students. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about the first gen college experience. And we're going to start off with a with a student panel. And first we're going to have Jasmine Wrangle. She's the president of the Baton Latinx Network. She's going to come back on. And then we're also going to have Brian Zuluaga, who is a recent graduate of an undergraduate from UVA. And he's actually working up in DC for the Center for Public Impact. And he actually founded the Baton Latinx Network a couple years ago. And so I'm going to talk to Jasmine and Brian about their experiences. And then Jasmine and I had a chance to catch up with Irene Cruz and Irene Cruz actually works with a program out in the San Francisco Bay Area called Summer Search. And Summer Search basically provides a lot of support services for uh, for students who a lot of them are first first generation college students and helping them navigate that world and and kind of being that support system for them. And so we had a great conversation with Irene. So let's. uh, Without further ado, let's get to it and let's talk with Brian and Jasmine. So Jasmine, the, the term first-generation college student, um, what kind of comes to your mind when that term is used? And I'm curious, has the, the, the meaning or implications evolved as you progress through the higher education system?
2: That's a good question. That's a loaded question. Um... I think what comes to mind when that, first, when that term is used, I, I don't think that I can really take my experience out of how uh, I define the term first generation student. So I always think of somebody that's typical to my background um, of whose family had very little means to pursue a higher education or they had pressures, economic pressures against them to um, just continue working and not kind of develop themselves in that way um I think the the meaning of it has changed a lot to greater structures in our society that have kept people from attaining this really this really um, incredible cool, formative experience I mean college definitely isn't for everybody but there is some very transformative value in there where you do get to meet people of different backgrounds and you get to expand your knowledge and deepen your values uh and so I think while I've progressed through the higher education system, I've realized that first generation students come in very different um backgrounds and they come in very different uh ages uh My mother technically now is a first generation student i guess um because her parents never finished school or even went to school, and now she she got her g e d and she's working on her associates and so uh i think it's it's just changed it's it's all very situational um Brian do you have anything that you would probably add to that or
0: yeah I mean I totally agree I think there's so much diversity within the community of first generation college students even right now like as i like I graduated in May I'm like at my job and it's almost like another way to connect with with colleagues or even coworkers. um individuals where um you know you can't really assume uh, that a student or someone is first-gen. It's not something that becomes apparent, it's something that you share and you discuss um, as you get to know someone else. So that has definitely been uh, something that I've enjoyed in terms of connecting with other first-gen students because I think it's, I mean, we go through very similar paths through higher education. For me, it really stems to like resiliency Um, it begins in high school because you have to learn the whole application process, the the common app, the FAFSA, figuring out financial um, constraints in terms of what schools you can apply to, what schools you cannot apply to. So, And then from there, I mean the resiliency just continues into higher ed in terms of you know beginning to understand the relationship between students and professors, You don't have that knowledge which is passed down through your family or, um, you know, relatives to to know how to navigate the higher education space. So totally agree with what Jasmine was saying.
1: Brian, what do you think what challenges do you think are specific to to first generation students at UVA? Is there anything in particular to UVA that you think that. um, you know, makes um, challenges to first-generation students kind of very specific to to Charlottesville and to UVA?
0: Yeah, let me think. I mean, in terms of UVA, so recently I will say that there's been more of a push probably through President uh, Ryan uh, since he is a first-generation college student himself. Um, so I think there's definitely been more support for the first-generation uh, community at UVA. Um, but I think when I started off um, in 2016 at UVA, there wasn't, um, I guess, that much resources for first-generation students. You sort of had to go looking for it. Um, in, the, in the years since, I mean, there's, the, there's several organizations um, that have been created for first-generation uh, college students. Um, I'm even hopeful that maybe an organization will pop up in Batten. Um, so that's, that's a task for all of your listeners, Sean. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think in terms of UVA, it's hard for me to pick out what like a specific point um, in terms of my own experience or for the broader students at UVA. But for me, since I was a out-of-state um, student, so I think that's, that's something that is peculiar to my case where, you know, I have to learn not only am I like in a new higher educational setting, but... I'm also in a completely new state. I'm away from my family, um, which, again, I think there's like some shared knowledge with if you have family that already went to college, you know how to navigate, um, that the parents are aware that, you know, that the their kids have flown the nest for a couple years or, you know, from from fall until the spring. Whereas for me, I mean, it was definitely an iterative process, I guess, with my parents trying to figure out, okay, this is... Um, you know, I'll be home for 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 winter. I'll be home for the holidays. Don't worry about it. I'll be back. Um, and also, the pro—I mean, there's a lot more I- that can be discussed in terms of like my relationship with my parents and teaching them, because it's not only me going through the process of being a first-generation student, but it's also my parents learning a lot of this as well. But what do you, what do you think, Jasmine? Anything that sticks out about UVA?
2: Well, UVA in general, I think I have a different experience from it right being a graduate student um, which I think we'll get to later but when I went to undergrad there were a lot of support mechanisms there for me because when it was a really small school there were only 1200 of us and I was also in a program that was specifically dedicated to support first generation students with um, like weekly programming on professional development building up your resume networking um, public speaking and and there was also a lot of other fun stuff on social justice and uh, racial equity, which um, really helped me make sense of my path, my, my place in the larger system. Um, but within that, I also see, um, and Brian, I'd love for you to kind of let me know if you see this too. There was so much pressure to still figuring it out on my own because everyone else around me had it figured out or um anyone else who wasn't a part of that program that I was in essentially they had it all figured out and they knew how to make it work and it was really hard for me to ask for help because of everyone else around me just um knowing that and so I want to know do you think the the very kind of elitist community of UVA makes it much more daunting for first generation students to get the support that they need?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think it definitely adds to it, like for sure. Um, in terms of, I mean, what's what's that effect called where you you're in a in a setting? Jasmine, help me out here. What's what's it called? It's uh, are you taking uh, I, imposter I, syndrome? You know I'm yes, imposter syndrome. Um, like that exists. <laughs> um, I mean, and it's also something that I think exists, or for me at least, like sort of carries on to work in some ways. But at UVA, I mean, I mean, yeah, you have uh, definitely in a elite, you have an elite school, you have students that may have legacy backgrounds. Um, so it's definitely really competitive. And I think it only increases at Batten as well, because, you know, you enter a program which is highly competitive. So naturally, you'll have really amazing students in your cohorts. So, you're really challenged to, you know, do your best in classes, and, you know, by nature of UVA and the the culture of students of being leaders and, um, you know, leading organizations and student-led governance. That's just like a nature of UVA where you sort of feel like you have to contribute to that as well to some extent. Um, so yeah, no, I think it's there's definitely a competitiveness that is an aspect I think and it, um, yeah, definitely is an aspect of being a 1st general student.
1: I, I think it's, um, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I I feel like it's, um, whether it's undergrad or even in grad school, um, like I'm in my thirties and no one has it figured out, right? Like no one has it figured out. And I I think, um, and the term first-gen student and even the issues around first-generation students, you know, when I was an undergrad back in, um, you know over 10 years ago i i had never heard the term until i came back to grad school and and it's um it just feels like there's um you know certain people i think have a different they carry themselves in a different way and make it seem like they have it figured out but no one has it figured out right like no one does and and it's um that's something especially coming back to school coming back to uva that i think i've been uh, a little bit more attuned to and so jasmine my next question for you look, looking back um are there any challenges that you didn't anticipate um, as a first-gen student, maybe as a as an undergrad or or in grad school? And and if so, how how did you how did you overcome that?
2: Yeah, I I didn't anticipate, and I think it's just because of the way that I was raised and the way that I was just conscious of my background and ways to leverage it. But I never I never anticipated having to be having to explain my background so much in um, how it informs the way that I look at the world or the way that I see um, policy or the way that I even see um, like politics. I, I, I have never been in that space where I needed to not only explain that but also defend it on why it's, why it's important. Um, and it's exhausting. Uh, that part is really exhausting. I mean, we, we have several conversations in class and it's, it's also the nature of my identity being first generation, low income, woman of color. There are so many levels to it where I feel like people want to learn from me, but there's so much emotional taxation that goes into feeling like I need to educate others. On what it's like to be me, or what it's like to be from my background. Um, so I do not anticipate any of that. Uh, sometimes it's it's a it's a torch that I feel uh, honored to carry, but it's an exhausting uh, one for sure. And I think that uh, the way that some of my friends and I, who currently still work to support first generation students in the um, in the organization that I used to work for, are now contemplating how how cost benefit how effective is it to put students in predominantly white institutions, very affluent institutions when where they're going to have to carry so much of that labor for their classmates their professors um, staff members as being the only students of marginalized backgrounds um, and so I think that that's just something we all have to be conscious of while we're um, engaging in work and just kind of regular conversations with students but yeah, that's that's something that I didn't anticipate, Brian. I don't know if you have uh, any other um, unexpected challenges.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I'll start off with I think a lot of that resonates with me, Jasmine, in terms of like carrying my torch and having my elevator pitch like at the ready, right? Like first gen student or, or FGLI, uh, first gen low income, out of state, um, S- Hispanic, uh, Latino. So like you always have to have that elevator pitch ready um, at UVA and... But I also think as exhausting as it is sometimes like sharing um, all of that, I think it's important because through sharing my identity, my lived experiences, that connects you to other people, um, which I found to be like when I was back at UVA, I started creating, um, you know, mentoring relationships with first years, second years, and that wouldn't have happened if I didn't share um, you know, my experiences as a first-gen student, as a Latino student at UVA. So so I think it's, it really is crucial. Um, and I think in addition to mentorship, or, or on the topic of mentorship, that's something that I didn't anticipate being such an important role once I came to UVA. I think I came from the mindset, um, and I don't know if maybe this is a general theme for first-gen students, but being very individualistic, like I can do it by myself. Um, I mean, that was my perspective in high school where, I mean, I didn't really get any like tutoring services whatsoever for the SAT, ACT. Um, I just, I don't know, I maybe I just studied myself. Um, but at UVA, I figured out that you needed your, your role models, you needed professors that you could have confidence in, that they would be very transparent and open with you about the realities of being 1st gen, of being Latino at UVA, or any other higher educational institution. So so yeah, I think over the years at UVA, I really learned about the potential for mentorship, and not only for me, but also trying to pay it forward as well for other students who um, are going through the same battles um, that I went through, right? Like, there's no really need to, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. If you have I mean, if you learned skills or solutions um, throughout your educational experience, I mean, that's just knowledge they can share with others. Like, there's no need for them to go through the same struggles that, that I did if I can just share, um, you know, my lived experience. And that's something that I still try to do and keep in touch with other UVA undergrads uh, um, that had a lot of the questions that I did.
1: Brian, that actually touches on, you know, kind of my next question and, and it was just going to be what support structures do you think are most helpful for, for first-generation students? Yeah, I
0: mean, so I sort of narrow it down, I think, into the different buckets, right? So I think of like financial resources, which are huge, right? Um, for, for me, at least, like that was a huge determinant of if I were to come to UVA um, and UVA has a great, uh, need-based aid program. Um, so access to UVA was very helpful for me because um, for me, and I think for a lot of other 1st general students, it's a huge mystery, right? The financial um, process of matriculating into higher ed or into college. Um, so I was always pushed away from applying to out-of-state schools, or, or maybe I didn't really think about it. I, I was thinking about staying in-state in Pennsylvania because of the lower in-state prices. But I mean, over the years I've learned and um, the process has become like demystified in a way where you, you could apply to out-of-state schools and it's possible for you to get even more funding than you stay in-state, um, which is something that you learn again through through mentorship, through experiences with, with others. And so, so that's the one bucket. I think financial resources for, for first-gen students, it scholarships or um, once they enter school I mean book scholarships are crucial um, other services that may just create stronger social capital between students um, creating those settings where it could be like a dinner or uh, a, I mean like a, a get-together with faculty who might also be first-gen students I think that's huge because um, I think through social capital, you really get your your feet grounded at, at college. Um, but yeah, I think those are resources and support mechanisms that I found to be really helpful.
1: Jasmine, as as it relates to to being a first generation student, you know how how has your second experience now in higher education in grad school? How has it differed from your from your first experience in undergrad?
2: It's been a lot harder. Um, I think the first impossible attainment and it sounds impossible um it felt impossible at the time like being a high school student looking at what my choices were for possibly going to go get um a bachelor's degree um but having having had that under my belt graduate school felt like a much higher and much more distanced um goal for me to reach um and it felt just all the more unattainable i mean out of my giant family of over 100 people only one or two other of us have our masters degree so and there's a lot there's there's definitely at least um i have like over 100 cousins or something but for my own family to have so little like me, uh postgraduate post secondary degrees, um, it feels very like everyone's watching. Um, and not even just my family, it's it's other people that think that this should be my next goal or this should be my next attainment, but not knowing how to do it or how to even start. And I remember my cousin sending me all of his GRE preparation books for um, just getting practice. And they are old. They're like from 2002 or 2003, but they still worked and they helped. Um, but I also got help paying for the GRE through my scholarship program. Like they paid for me to take it while I was still in undergrad. And I only took it once. I said, this is this is the score that I'm going to get. And if it's great, awesome. If it's not, we'll figure it out later. And it, it was very much just um, I felt like I was at the tip of a cliff and I was kind of just teetering either way because I didn't know, I didn't, I couldn't find stability in a, um, a path that I felt was clear for me to take to pursue a graduate degree. Um, and there are much less um, opportunities for support for graduate, for first-generation graduate students. And I remember talking to someone last spring and talking to a lot of our cohort members too on how difficult it is to navigate the graduation or the graduate degree process of what's best for me. Do I, what do I have to have to get into these programs and what do I have to do with this degree? Um, So it's, it's a, lot more convoluted of a process um, for that master's degree. I think that people are getting better for pre-professional degrees, so be it med school or law school, um, providing those channels of support, uh, but it's still for other master's degrees, it's um, still just really
1: difficult. Well, Jasmine, we had a, uh, a chance to catch up with Irene Cruz, who has kind of devoted her professional life, you know, for now, Um, you know, out in the Bay Area, really working with, uh, with high school students, and they have a, um, um, you know, she's, this is something she's been passionate about since she was an undergrad, she did an undergrad at um, UC Santa Cruz, and then went and got her master's degree in education policy, and so um, you and I had a a chance to catch up with her, and and she's doing some, some amazing work and providing the support that that we've kind of talked about.
2: Yeah, no, she really is, and I I just hope that Uh, we can continue to figure out what those support mechanisms are and make sure that higher education isn't something that's only available to people with the most money or the most power, that it is something that's equitably distributed through opportunities. Um, So especially now, I think higher education um, has seen a, has their world been rocked in terms of the policy space or just uh, higher education as a field. And so I'm hoping that it goes in a much more um, equitable direction.
1: Brian, we'll give you the last word before we throw it to our conversation with Irene.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the last word I'd I'd give in terms of like being a first gen student support mechanisms is I'll go back to mentorship. Um, I mean, not only do I have I mean, I I consider them friends back at UVA that are in their first year of college, second year of college. And I try to check in with them as much as I can. Um, My sister, she's also in her second year of college. So I try to talk to her, see how, um, you know, even like a decision like what what major uh, she's gonna like pick. I mean, for me, I remember I was going through the same battle she's going through right now where I had no idea what I wanted to study. Um, because as a first-gen student, you don't really know <laughs> how, how majors would translate into a career, right? Um, but yeah, and I think not only does that mentorship apply from first-gen student to first-gen student, but I mean, there's so much that first-gen students can learn from students that have, uh, you know, family or family members, relatives um, that have gone to college. So as much as um, much mentorship that can grow around, and I think UVA is going in a really uh, great
1: direction. Well, Brian and Jasmine, thank you so much for for taking the time to do, to do this. This has been great, and now we will throw it to our conversation with Irene Cruz. So, Irene, the way that we start these podcasts with all of our guests is just that. With everything that's been going on, basically since since March, you know, how are how are you feeling?
3: Yeah, um, I'm feeling okay. Right? Like considering all the stuff that has been happening in the past couple of months, also because I live in California, the wildfires have been happening, right? So that has been an interesting reality of not having clear skies, weird lighting and also bad air quality. So thankfully today the air is clear, the sky is blue. I'm able to breathe in fresh air. So I'm feeling good. I'm feeling a lot better than the past couple of weeks. But yeah, California, wildfires, it's like an annual tradition nowadays for like fall
2: my goodness. That's hard. How, what have you been able to do? Um, I know that some people have just been staying inside, but it must be extra daunting or stressful to have, like, to have to stay inside because of COVID, to have to stay inside and like social distance, but also staying inside so that you can get good air quality. How Have you been staying sane in your house now?
3: Oh my goodness. Yeah, so thankfully where I work, they have been giving us like flex time for us to have like mental health days, like if we need it. Um, So I definitely have been taking Fridays off um, just for like my own personal well-being. And then also because the air quality is really bad, I have been getting like air purifiers here in my house just so I can be able to breathe. But yeah, it has been interesting of just like um, seeing outside seeing that there's like no sun and just like trying to ground myself and also taking the break I need um to like recuperate and you know just like self-care
1: well i I feel like uh we're recording this on a friday so we're recording this on your day off so i apologize
3: (laughs) no no worries no worries i'm like all right 10 a.m friday let's do it
1: awesome well um irene first you know we kind of want to dive a little bit into your background and how you got into the work that you're doing and so um you know i i saw um you graduated from UC Santa Cruz in 2011 with a psychology degree. I think you did a lot of work while you were in college. Um, but can you just talk a little bit about your background, um, you know, where you grew up and and kind of how that laid the foundation for, for what you're doing now?
3: Yeah, so I'm originally from the San Francisco Bay Area. So throughout this interview, I might refer to the Bay Area. That's what I'm talking about. Um, so I'm from the East Bay. That's a section of it. So it's between um, Oakland and San Jose. So that's where I grew up. I went to high school. It's a very, very diverse area. Um, My high school, it was around 4,500 students and everyone is like super diverse. So for me, um, social justice has been something that has always been a part of my upbringing, being in part of the Bay Area with social justice movements. And for me, um, I went to Santa Cruz, definitely a huge social justice vibe, I'm sure maybe you guys have heard of that vibe over there. It's a coastal town. Definitely has been known for like hippie culture and stuff. Um, But for me, like psychology was a way for me to really understand like people, but then also my expertise was community psychology. So that was involving a lot of different stakeholders, learning more about different um, communities. I worked with a local um, elementary school around there. So it was very much an immigrant community, people who worked in the fields, like in Watsonville. Um, so for me, I was able to get like a big, big perspective about you know, the communities that I worked with, but then also like advocacy. So that was something that was really instilled with me um, throughout my experience at UC Santa Cruz um, and also like after, like when I went to graduate school. So definitely, definitely. Social justice has been something that has been with me my entire upbringing and life.
2: Uh,
3: Irene, mean, are you a first-generation student? I am. Uh, my parents, they're both immigrants from El Salvador, so I was definitely the first one in my whole family to go to college and go through that process of
2: college applications, all that, and yeah, also navigating through grad school too. And how, is, how did you navigate that as a first-generation student? I'm, I'm also a first-generation student, and I think the biggest hurdle is just navigating all of these areas of academia, especially the post-secondary, like a, a graduate degree. Um, yeah, how did you navigate all those areas? Great question. So thankfully, when
3: I was in high school, I was part of a college access program called Puente. Not entirely sure if something like that exists outside of California, but definitely it was based within the University of California system. So I was able to have additional advisors in my high school. They were able to talk me through about A3G requirements, actually like making sure that I'm on track to go to universities. And that was really, really helpful come senior year, because they were able to look at my applications, make sure everything looks good, personal statements, that sort of thing. Um, and that really motivated me. That like, yes, college is definitely something for me, and it's it's obtainable. And they were able to answer questions that my parents, people in my community, were not able to answer because we don't know what we don't know, know, right? So that was really helpful for me to get into. Um, undergrad, And then once I was already in undergrad, thankfully, I was a research assistant. So I worked closely with graduate students, faculty members, and they really were really honest about like, graduate school, what does academia look like, tenureship, and then also like, what are the other avenues that I could take? So I was really thankful that they were able to share with me that like research is a way for me to go into graduate school outside of becoming like a professor. And I really took that to heart and I was really ambitious as a grad student. I applied to PhD programs and i was thinking to myself now as a reflection, I'm like, probably that was not the best time because you have to be like really on it and like really, really knowledgeable. But hey, they made it seem like graduate school was like obtainable and I was a really like high achieving um, undergrad. So I was like, sure. But anyway, it was really helpful just to have those really supportive people and to answer those questions of like, how does the process look like?
1: Well, and then, so you end up in grad school at Columbia at the, t- teachers, um, the teachers College of, of Columbia University, and, um, but you spent, there were a few years between your undergrad and, and grad school, so can you just tell us what, what were you doing you know, out of undergrad, and then what led you to, to go to Columbia?
3: Yeah, so I went back to the Bay Area after I graduated from Santa Cruz. Where I live, um, the Bay Area, there are so many nonprofits that are based in Oakland, California. Oakland, California you throw a stone, you're going to hit so many nonprofits. So I worked at one called College Track. They're more of an academic one. So they definitely partner up with different high school students across Oakland to offer them academic support, tutoring. I was a tutor. So every single day I would go there and like help them out. Like it was like a group kind of um, tutoring session and I was able to help them out with their homework. And with doing that, I was able to learn how does high school look like? in in these different schools so that they were definitely able to open up to me and talking about their teachers like a lot of them were straight out of undergrad had little to no teaching experience probably were in like teaching based programs where it's a two years kind of slit and then they go off to something else so they're talking to me about like hey like my english teacher my math teacher my stem classes teachers they all were here for two months and then they ventured out to something and now i don't have a teacher So for me, it was like kind of filling in the gaps of education, but then also learning about like what happens in like administrative ways, right? Like how does high school look like the district teaching all of that? So with that experience of me working directly with students that really sparked my interest into education policy. So for me, I was really into like K through 12 education policy and like, how does that look like, especially for underserved students? And with that drive, then I ventured and looked to education policy master's programs and definitely Teachers College Columbia was on top of my list because they have such a wide array of different education policies that one can take. So I joined in. I did K through 12. Once I did get into grad school, I noticed that that wasn't for me because You guys are in policy, you probably know this, but K through 12, it's everything but education. It's everything but that goes into the classroom like curriculum. It's a lot of like teachers, salary unions. Um, how does that look like with districts and like all the ties to federal stuff? So for me, I'm like, ugh, this is not for me. So I decided that higher education policy is a lot closer to my experience and also like where I want to be in making those changes. So that's kind of where that trajectory Went from like after graduating from Santa Cruz to me landing into Teachers College master's program.
1: I guess, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I guess you didn't like the East Coast too much. You only were here for two years and then went right back.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I did, right? Like living in New York is awesome. I live in the Bay Area. San Francisco compared to New York, we're like, oh, it's a city. It's not a city, it's a town. Like going into New York, I was like, whoa, like, okay, all these movies, all these different things talk about New York. It, I get it, it makes sense. Um, but yeah, there's a little bit that has happened between like me graduating, um, Teachers College and me venturing out, like there was something that happened there and I can share that out. So after I graduated from, um, Teachers College with my master's in education policy, I applied to a graduate fellowship in DC. So it was through the, the post-secondary national policy Institute, also called PNPI. So that's where I met Megan because she, she's a fellow this year. Um, so I was in the inaugural class of, of their fellows, and I moved out from New York City to D.C., got a U-Haul truck, put all this stuff in my apartment, made the trip down there, and thankfully PNPI, they did offer me housing for the summer. So I was over there, and it was an amazing, amazing experience where I was able just to see, like, what does Capitol Hill look like, especially those who tout different areas of education if it's K through 12, if it's, if it's higher ed, if it's like all these different components of like what does higher ed look like? And at the time it, and also right now it's like free college. How does that look like? Accreditation, all these different things. So for me, I was just able to just see like all these different aspects and components that education within education policy that exists that I as a student and I as someone who lives in California wouldn't know that that exists at these people these people, they're the ones responsible for how does repayment loans, um, payment options look like, right, and in all those different terms and stuff, so I was doing that for, things like three, three months, and from there, I was really venturing into getting to the higher education policy arena over there in D.C., but 2016 was also an, a time where you know it was a time where people had to vote right it's like there was an option for a new president and at the time it was when obama was still in the white house so everything that is in education is tied and appointed by the president so of course november happened different president was there and then i decided you know what it's time for me to go especially if everything is tied to education and i did not um, agree with how things were turning so because of that then i moved back to to um, the Bay Area because of, you know, the climate change, and also I felt like I needed to be back home and put all my expertise that I gained back into my own community.
2: Nice, That's awesome. Um, Could you tell us a little bit then about how you were brought to Summer Search? I think that um, the work from what the research that we've done about Summer Search, it looks like it's very much in tune to your background and a lot of the work that you did as an undergraduate student, but also I think that now you have a lot more knowledge behind some of the structures that you are all um doing but we'd love to hear about the work that you do there and just the work of the organization a little bit more
3: cool yeah so i learned about summer surge when i was still out there in dc i was like i'm gonna move back to the bay area let's see what exists in nonprofits. um so definitely shifting from like a policy background kind of focus to more like direct service so for me what really really Brought my attention about summer search and reading their mission statement is that they have like this openness about post-secondary opportunities for students it's not like those programs that they're like very paternalistic of like our students have to meet xyz outcomes in order for them to be quote unquote successful or otherwise they're out kind of thing but this one it had like a more of a humanistic kind of approach in really being there for students and offering also social emotional support so me as an advisor It's not just like, how are you doing with grades? What's your GPA? It's more like, how are you as a person? And also like, are there any things that are coming up with you? So having more of that general type of support. So for me, that was a definite selling point. And from there, yeah, I applied. I got in. I moved across the country from DC. I put all the stuff in my boxes, probably like three or four big boxes. I moved out and a couple weeks later, I started my job. In having like a new kind of advisor thing. So Summer Search, they are really, really awesome. Um, based in the Summer Search Bay Area, which is based in Oakland. But they do have other um, sites across the nation. So definitely check out their website. Um, and they offer different opportunities for students. So one of the calling cards for Summer Search is that they offer two um leadership opportunities in the summer so sophomore year that's where students go on wilderness trips across California or other parts of the Bay Area uh, and they basically like have two weeks where they learn about themselves and they are able to get out of their comfort zones and work with other students in a group setting and from there they're able to become more confident and then the second year in their junior year that is where they have opportunities to well, again, pre-COVID, go to international trips, service learning trips, and also maybe if they want to go to college campuses and live there for two weeks and just have that experience of being a college student. So that is a calling card that we have in our program, but throughout then throughout their experience of them joining Summer Search, which starts 10th grade, all the way up to 12th grade, that's high school program. Then they can continue on into college for the post-secondary one all through that they have an advisor that they talk through about academics they talk about what they're going through in life and they have that supportive foundation with whatever they choose so some research we are very open to students going to four-year colleges community or even technical or something else picking a gap year but we're just like making sure that they have all the information that they need for that particular goal that they have for themselves and once they're there having additional support through the college program. So in a nutshell, that is how summer research looks like. Definitely a full wraparound program that's very longitudinal.
1: And so you, in in your role, if I uh, understand correctly, you have 35 students that you're in charge of, right? That are, they're all high school between sophomore and senior year. And you're Having conversations with them on a weekly basis, and and what what kinds of things are, are you are you helping navigate, and, and how's that how's that process for for you?
3: Yeah. So right now, um, yeah, I had thirty eight. I had thirty eight students. Yeah, it fluctuates every year, uh, but I at the time I had tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade. So now my seniors they ventured out to college so they're part of that but yeah every single week had weekly mentoring calls with them and again it's open to whatever they want to talk about right and it could be academic it could be talking about life them getting a job their relationships um, also them having I don't know like maybe if, if they're feeling a certain way about going to college or having some apprehensions And recently, because of the pandemic, definitely talking about, like, how is this affecting them, right? Like, making a a big, big shift that has happened because of COVID is making quick, quick, quick changes in how their education looks like, from moving from in-person early March to venturing into completely online. And their teachers were, like, completely confused, frazzled, administrators, all of that. And it was a lot on the students. The same way it goes, it's like COVID has been a very interesting, I would say like a mental health kind of issue, right? In the fact that students, they had a very certain way of how their future in life is gonna look like and automatically that was taken away. That completely was something that was happening with my seniors, especially those who were really, really working hard to go to a certain university. They went to their dream school, for example, UCLA, and they're like, okay, I'm going to leave my home, you know, everything that I wrote in my personal insight questions, PIQs about like my family and stuff like that. Now is my chance and opportunity for me to make a new life for myself. That's not the case anymore. Like now they have to take virtual school and they're in the same community or in the same home that they were writing about that is not supportive and it's not ideal for them to be focused on their schooling. So that has been very, very recent in my conversations with students about just generally like, how are you doing? Also talking about the futures and also like the uncertainty that comes with it, right? If it's students applying right now for college, if it's those who are currently just logging into college, there's so much unknown. And one thing that's grounding for me as someone who is quote, unquote a responsible adult in their life or an advisor, it's like being honest and, and knowing that there is uncertainty. I don't know all the answers, right? But it's making sure that you as a person person first that you feel supported and that you feel heard because there are a range of emotions that is human and it's completely natural and it's good for someone to hear about how you are feeling so if anything social emotional support has been a big big thing that has been happening throughout
2: the past couple months during the pandemic and that's That's great. Uh, That was going to be one of my questions, too, is just wondering how you and the organization have been kind of adapting to these new circumstances. Um, But I am really interested. uh, So UC Berkeley released a recent study that articulates the disproportionate difficulties that first generation students will face in college as a result of COVID-19. Uh, They mentioned specifically that first-generation students have faced more severe uh, financial hardships, more difficult home environments, and greater difficulties adapting to distance learning. Uh, You mentioned these a little bit more, but have you you or the organization kind of adjusted your programming in order to mitigate these new exasperated challenges, or what's been going on there?
3: Yes, it's so many things, so many things, right? The pandemic, COVID-19, all that. Yes, it's a health thing, but it's also like education. It's also so many different things like income and stuff. So yeah, um, summer search right now, we are just trying to collect what is going on in our students right now. Like what's being shared out with them. A big thing that was happening was housing, right? Like students who are gonna go to college, how was that going to look like since they had housing contracts and then the school decided like, ooh, JK, never mind. And then from now, it's like, oh, I have to be here in person. So that was a lot of information collecting that I was doing. So it's a lot of real time like, OK, this is what's happening. This is what the university is saying, pivoting, pivoting, pivoting. OK, now we have to do this option. And also housing definitely affects financial aid. Right. So if a student was given a certain financial aid packet at the start of the year, that is completely different. Right. So for us, it was also catching all these different things, making sure that when they actually do start college, actually do start the semester, that they don't have any new holds or special fees or anything like that. So for us, that is how it looked like. And also one thing that was an interesting challenge is because the students are not going to be living on campus, things that were given to them, you know, those who live on campus like Wi-Fi or access to better um, study conditions, like actual libraries and stuff like that, that is thrown out, is thrown out the window, is off the cliff, you know, so now they have to make do with what they have. So access to laptops, um, wi- actually like really, really good Wi-Fi, hotspots, find, finding a quiet space that they can actually have a desk and be unbothered. These are new things that we're trying to mitigate, like the new learning experiences for students and making do with what they have. And for me, it's really unfortunate because the students have worked so hard and, and they really had their heart set into having a certain life right in the future for them to start their, their new like academic venture, but this is not the case, right? So it's also making sure that we as advisors, that we also listen to the frustrations, their fears, and also listening to like, is a four-year degree something that they would like to do? you know and that is also something that I have been hearing too it's like because they're doing virtual school and because community colleges are also doing virtual school they look at the financial aid that they were given and they're like dang I still have a gap of four thousand dollars it might be more cost benefit for me to do community college and then walk you through like okay if you choose this option this is what it's going to look like you do need to retransfer in a couple years and that is also reality of money it's like I have to pay this off. And for me, this is not worth it of me being in my house. And that's also another reality that we're hearing as advisors for both high school program and also college ones. So it's very, very interesting in just how
2: this is panning out. <laughs> um, so then it is interesting uh, how you mentioned how everything is panning out. And I think as you as an education professional, as an education policy professional too, um, how do you anticipate all of this kind of reshaping our higher education as we know it? Yeah, that is a good, good question.
3: For me, I'm really curious to see if there's gonna be any trends on those who originally like signed on to college, whether or not they actually enrolled and whether or not they actually persisted throughout the year, like this year, right? Like 2020, 2021. And I'm sure that there's gonna be like data and reports on it, but I do see, and I have read an article in the Washington Post this week that this year, potentially academically, is a year that there could be a lot of dropouts. There could be a lot of low income first generation students who do that, do that hard decision of like, this is not for me. This is, what is this kind of thing? And kind of derailing it. So if anything, it's gonna be a lot for educators those in the policy world, those who are in higher education institutions, for us to really think about like persistence. What will that mean? I know that people have been writing about that forever, right? Of like, this has to be done in order for first gen students and these wraparound supports and all these things. But now it's like, okay, yes. And there's a new reality that everything is virtual. You know, and how would you offer these supports if everything is virtual and you have to log into a Zoom call? And I have been hearing that in the past summer of like um, summer bridge programs that are virtual and having like uh, first gen programs where students are doing that and Zoom fatigue is real. So it's also thinking about like what other options could be there if students are really tapped out in one form of a platform.
1: Irene, are, are you seeing, are there any um any institutions or any practices that, that you've seen that have been effective and, and more effective in providing that support? Anything that, that you think should be duplicated on a, on a bigger scale?
3: Hmm. I think connection, to be completely honest with you, of like actually offering connection points for students with each other and also with graduate students and faculty members. That was a big, big uh, feedback that I was hearing from my students who were doing um, summer bridge programs or connecting with other programs in their new college of like it was cool just like listening to the presentation and PowerPoint things but I didn't get a chance to talk to other people I I don't know who are these people in my cohort or who are the these people in EOP so I think it would be important also for facilitators to kind of think back and be like okay we're talking at the students we're giving them resources but we're not allowing them that experience of college right for them to actually get to know those around them so I don't have the answer of how that's going to look like remotely but if that can be something that institutions offer that would be a great point just for them to build a sense of community that like yeah I'm part of this school and I know who these people are and by doing that like I want to continue being here and being invested in the school
1: I I think something that um you know, when I went through undergrad, I didn't have the language for it, but it was something that I think I was, I was lacking. And I, I'm not a, a first-gen student. Uh, my parents, um, I have uh, family members who went to college, but um, I was lacking in the kind of the social capital aspect. And I'm curious, you know, how, um, that was a very steep learning curve, I know, uh, for me. And, you know, in times of COVID, virtually, like, how, how's that playing out? And, and, and how, how are you advising students, you know, for, for that part when, when everything's over Zoom?
3: Yeah, so that's interesting. Normally um, in summer research, we do a lot of in-person advising. We actually go to, my students, they're based in San Jose. That is around 45 minutes from the office. So if anything, I would be going down there to San Jose, going to the school and being with them. But because of COVID, everything has been like over Zoom. Also highly recommend Google Meet. That is an excellent platform because they don't have that weird time limit. Uh, I've been doing that a lot and Honestly, because of like the scope and the, the geography of where my students are, it is actually more efficient for me to just like do like a Google Meet thing and be like, hey, now I can see you and I don't have to drive all the way to San Jose kind of thing. But yeah, that is one thing that we are offering for our groups for advising college workshops that we're going to be hosting very soon. It's all going to be digital. So I'm really curious if that is like a platform that students really engage on and they're like, yeah, this is great. Or they're like "Ugh, another Zoom call. I'm already having this with my school and my teachers. like, I don't want to do it. So I'm again, curious how to like get students engagement, but it does seem like Zoom virtual stuff is something that's very much needed and will still continue in the pandemic.
2: Yeah, I think, um, Everyone's just kind of asking all the time, have you seen any co- cool new creative things And how to get people engaged or network? Um, and it, it, is, it is exhausting. Zoom fatigue is, is very real. Um, you have to invest in whole new setups for yourself too for your ne- now home office environment. I know I had to. Um, but I think, I mean, we want to transition to a, a couple of bigger questions about just Uh, first generation support, the work that you do and its intersection with social justice. I wanna ask you um, from what you know from the work that you've done and also just your academic experience, why do you think college is still so out of reach for so many students?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, One of the things I have been hearing a little bit more in working with students closely is students they already know about college. They already have advisors at their school who give them advice of like, okay, these are different ventures and stuff. But once they actually do get the financial aid award letters from school, that in and of itself is a deterrent for a lot of students because they know it's like, okay, cool. The school has given me this amount of money. I get Pell grants, all these different things, but there still is a gap, right? So a huge, huge thing I have been seeing is money, how to pay it off. What does that look like for me how do I cover that gap and a lot of times a lot of conversations I have about covering those gaps students are very adverse to having loans loans is something that they have heard from someone around their family and they're like I took a college loan and I never paid it back or it, it didn't work out for me or, or I dropped out or something and because of that then they're like okay I don't want to do college like college for me is scary it's very, very expensive and money is always going to be a huge, huge deterrent. And it has been something that I have been seeing long, long, long time now of just like advising students of like as much information as I can give them and like resources and stuff like that. If the money piece is not fixed or if they know for a fact that, you know, the gap is not going to be covered, then they're going to always consider options B, which is going to be college or just working. So definitely
2: money money, money,
3: money.
2: I've seen a lot of institutions. So I used to work in the the higher ed space uh, before I came to Batten to pursue my master's degree. Uh, And I saw there in New Jersey, a lot of the larger state schools would start to offer um, full tuition scholarships for first-generation, low-income students of uh, diverse backgrounds. And I was very struck by I think that initiative, but also how, how colleges essentially pushed it forward. And I'd love to hear your kind of thoughts on, on that and where kind of colleges are moving to with the financial aid package that they do deliver, but also how, how that kind of plays out in the long run, because I've seen that once you're offered that money, at least when it comes to financial, federal financial aid, it it is kind of taken away the next year and they just set students up kind of for failure on that financial side. Mm-hmm. That program sounds amazing.
3: That The fact that the college is doing that and is able to give them like full rides In California, it's interesting because there's two sets of public institutions, right? There's a CSU system, Cal State system, and then there's the University of California. Those two, hmm, in order for them to get a full ride, it has to, for me, in hearing all about advising and like, how does that look like? It's very rare that either the CSU or the UC gives full coverage, full tuition, covers everything. If anything, they provide maybe like three quarters, and then there's still like the gap. Definitely, um, in comparing the two, the Cal State system is definitely one of the institutions where they have been getting less and less funding, and definitely a lot of majors within the different CSUs are being impacted. So that is also something that I have conversations with students about it's like oh cool you want to do this particular major well guess what it's impacted you can't apply this year and they have caps of like okay we are not allowing students for this upcoming school year check again like later it might be op- might be an option for you so for me like it i do think that schools should be giving more aid And then here's another thing that I've been seeing a lot of. So because of that, students know that there is a gap, right? So students have been applying to different scholarships. And a lot of times, I've seen this with the UCs, if a student gets a scholarship and they already had institutional aid from the school, they make adjustments. The school says, oh, cool, you got this new set of money. Let's lower down the amount of financial aid that we're giving you and to offset that so sometimes because of that adjustment there might be additional fees or a small amount that the student has to cover so that is why it's really interesting where scholarships that go directly to the college they offer The financial aid office will make that adjustment, or if the scholarship gives the money to the students directly, that might be a better option because then the student is able to utilize that funds for a laptop or books or something for their own personal expenses to go to college. So that's also like the little asterisk, little caveat that financial aid offices make when students have that outside income coming in. So I don't know, it's a very interesting situation, but if schools can actually honor the fact that. Students need money and not touch it, that would be ideal in in them whenever they do get scholarships. So that's one thing I've I've seen recently.
1: So you you mentioned, um, you know, you were a first-gen student. And I'm curious, as you kind of think back to your undergraduate experience and kind of the support that you received, um, you know, have you seen that the support for first-gen students, you know, how have you seen that evolve? How, How have you seen that, Um, improve get better if not how is it how is it uh, how's it lacking?
3: Definitely if I compare my experiences and what were available for me back then and now definitely a lot more college access programs that exist at the high schools. Also I've been hearing of college, college access programs that start as early as ninth grade even 8th grade and offering that support and having partnership um, high schools come in and they have advising and stuff like that. So I do think that, yeah, there is a lot of intentional programming that is happening right now in making sure that the inequities are being addressed and resources are being allocated. But there are still gonna be the ongoing gaps, right? So that is also, we see it year after year in college admissions, like those who are admitted to certain more selective institutions, that the percentages of those who are first gen or black or Latino is still like this, right? So I do think that if education policy is something that we look at and we try to actually make changes to, then structural stuff that currently exists needs to be addressed and needs to be changed as well, right? It cannot just be at the backs of college access programs and then trying to figure out how to change the world. If once the student already graduates from from high school, then there's like clear, clear gatekeeping, clear barriers, things that exist that will prevent them, no matter how quote unquote high achieving they are or all the access that they have, that if these structures still exist, then, you know, they're still gonna have those roadblocks later on. So I, I do think, yes, for college, for college access programs, yes, definitely a lot more funding now, a lot better programming, and also the research to back it up.
2: Yeah, I agree.
3: I, I wish
2: that I had those college access programs. It would have saved me and my family a lot of headaches and um, Google and questions, um, yeah, no, I, I agree and I'm, I'm glad that we do have those um, mecha- mechanisms and structures in place for our um, emerging first-generation students. Uh, but I think, I mean, I would love to hear a little bit more about your social justice approach to the work that you do. It's very clear in a lot of the um, things that you've told us already that social justice is like a key tenant of yours when like with your work, with how you communicate about it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you embrace this approach and how you see social justice intersecting with um, access to higher education.
3: Yeah, so for me, education is definitely tied to social justice, right? Access to higher education is a form of social justice, especially for underrepresented communities, especially for people like me, for Latino people who have been systematically kept out of these spaces. In order for us and I'm including myself in this, in order for us to make the changes in the world, the inequities that we see, all these things that we're like, ooh, that that needs to be changed. Education is part of that, right? In order to really have the knowledge, to really have the expertise, the history of how things have happened, how have things led to this point, that is super duper important. And for me, social justice is ensuring that those who have been displaced marginalized, have that position to make the changes that they see for themselves. And a lot of times people of color are discredited whenever they want to advocate for things in their community, make the changes. If it's health, if it's politics, if it's even things like immigration, they're like, oh, they don't know anything kind of thing. But for me, it's like if you empower people to have education, to achieve all these different things and learn and then have that expertise, then they can be champions in whatever they want. And that for me is the calling card of social justice, right? Because then you can create those changes that you long and that you experience, but now you have the power to do it, right? So for me as an educator, that's where my drive
2: and, and my push for, for any of my students. That's incredible. Thank you so much. We have one final kind of wrap up question uh, that we've been asking a lot of our guests uh, for the podcast. Uh, so, what's the leadership lesson that you wish you someone would have shared with you as a student, graduate, or undergraduate, or a uh, high school student uh, about, yeah, leadership?
3: Yeah, um, definitely. For me, is that leadership does not have a one stop, one size fit all model. That leadership can look differently, right? For me, leadership. My leadership style, for me, is like listening to to the group, seeing like what their needs are, not being like, oh, I know what you need because of my life experience and my view of the world, and this is what needs to be done. Like, no, my style is listening, making sure that I understand where they're coming from, and then from there, make the necessary changes, things like that. I did not have that aspect or perspective of leadership until later on going to college, interacting with more people in the world. But if students know that they can have leadership in different ways and it's not just authoritative and like, this is what I say or else, then that could be something that they themselves can see themselves as leaders, right? And in, in knowing that like, okay, I have this thing to share with others. This is my strength. And this is also my type of leadership style, right? And embracing that and really um, making sure that they develop that. So yes, if I had that as as a young student, whew, I I would have taken more opportunities and more risks.
1: <laughs> I think that's pretty rare in young students, though. I think it just it just has to come with some experience.
3: Uh-huh. Oh my goodness! And that is a PIQ question right now, a personal insight question for high school students applying to the University of California. What does leadership look like for you? Give an example. What are your thoughts on leadership though? So it's funny. I'm like, ha! Huh, answering that question for myself.
1: Thanks so much to Irene and to Jasmine and Brian for joining us. We will be back with another episode next week. Stay safe.